And once again, let me welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, so glad that you're here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors, and it's just a privilege to be in this space with all of you this morning. Just to remind you of where we are in Mark's gospel, it's the middle of the night, or it's the earliest uh, or the darkest part of the night just before the dawn. Um, Jesus has spent the night in Gethsemane. He has spent the night praying, and his, disi- his disciples have spent the night sleeping. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. He's just been arrested by the religious authorities and abandoned by all of his followers. That's where we are in Mark's gospel this morning, which means that the religious authorities finally have the opportunity that they've been looking for for months, maybe years. They finally have Jesus all to themselves Without the crowds, and they can finally put him on trial. They've been waiting for this. They've been preparing for this. Um, they've arranged witnesses to perjure themselves, to lie under oath. They've probably paid them just as much, as much silver as they had to pay to Judas just a, a few days ago. They've been waiting for this moment to put Jesus on trial and finally get rid of him. This is the moment when the world will put the judge of the world on trial. And it's deeply symbolic that this trial happens in the middle of the night, in the deep darkness, when the judge is judged. So the scene before us in our passage this morning, it's the scene of a courtroom. Um, Jesus is on trial. But Mark, our gospel writer, writes this in such a brilliant way. He wants us to see that actually Jesus is not the only person on trial right now in this moment, in the darkness before sunrise. There's another trial that's playing out at the exact same time in another courtroom that's just outside, just below where Jesus is at this moment. If Mark was a movie director, he would he'd probably use this, this film technique that you've seen in lots of different shows and films uh, before, where you have this split screen and you have two people or two situations, two scenarios that are both playing out at the exact same moment, but you can see both of them on the screen in front of you. Well, this morning in our passage, it's a split screen of two trials in two different courtrooms that are playing out simultaneously. In one courtroom, we have Jesus, who's surrounded by this intimidating crowd of the Sanhedrin, and the question for him is, who are you? But then just down below in the courtyard outside, there's another court that's in session. And there's another defendant. And his question, and it's not in front of the Sanhedrin, it's in front of a little slave girl, is, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Two courtrooms, two trials, and two very different outcomes. You know, A trial, at best, ideally, it's supposed to reveal the truth, right? A trial is intended to get to the bottom of a situation and pronounce a verdict. A trial is is meant to uncover and expose all the facts, to reveal what's really the case so that you can reach a verdict. And that's what's happening in these two trials. For the first time in public, we're going to see Jesus revealed for who he really is. It's been a secret that only the disciples have known up to this point. But now, in front of the crowd that should have recognized him, before anybody, in front of that crowd, Jesus is going to reveal himself for who he really is. 
But the thing is, at that exact same moment, on the other side of the split screen, in that other courtyard outside, we're going to see Peter, this committed, devoted, longtime follower of Jesus. We're going to see him revealed for who he really is too. This trial is going to uncover and reveal and publicly expose Peter for who he really is. But here's the thing. Jesus' trial reveals him for who he really is. What we're going to see is that Peter's trial reveals us for who we really are. Peter's trial actually exposes us. It's going to reveal us and, and, and invite us out into the light to be publicly exposed in ways that we would rather not be made public. You see, it's the fact that we're just like him. His trial reveals us as we really are. And listen, brothers and sisters and friends, that would be way too much to handle. It would be way too much to handle if it wasn't for the good news that Jesus is who he really is. You see, these two trials are here to show us that Jesus, as he really is, has come for you as you really are. Not the you that you want to be. Not the you that you've been trying so hard to be. Not the you that you might have convinced your parents that you are or your neighbors or your friends. Not the you that you've been projecting out to the world, but the real you. Jesus, as he really is, loves and is pursuing and wants to change you as you really are. Let's see how that's the case. Here in God's Word, Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53. This is God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jesus' trial here and Peter's trial are playing out simultaneously on this split screen of two different courtrooms that are in front of us. Two courtrooms, two trials, and two very different outcomes. But both trials reveal and publicly expose the truth about the person in question. Both trials get to the bottom of what's really there, of who's really there. And so the way that we're going to, to package this and, and, and look at it is, the, is under these two headings. How Jesus' trial reveals who he really is. And then secondly, how Peter's trial reveals who, re, who we really are. Jesus' trial reveals who he really is. And Peter's trial reveals who, he re, who, who we really are. And by the time that we're done, I hope that by God's grace that our hearts will be captivated by the first time or for the 10,000th time, by the good news that Jesus as he really is comes for and pursues and loves and changes we as we really are. Okay, so first of all, Jesus' trial reveals who he really is. At first, you can see this trial is not going well for these religious authorities. You can just, you can just feel the anxiety and the nervousness in the room, in this, in this courtroom. Uh, their palms are sweaty. You can just imagine they're nervous because nothing is going like they thought it would, right? An hour has gone by, and none of these witnesses can agree with each other. Um, all of the witnesses in the witness stand can't agree with each other. And listen, they've had months to plan for this. They've rehearsed their lines with these false witnesses. They've paid them money. They've planted them in the crowd. This was supposed to be the easy part, right? Because they think that there's so much evidence against Jesus, so many things that he's said and done that should be condemning, but, but it's not working. Not so far, at least. Mark tells us that their plans were unraveling and the trial is just going off of the rails. Verse 55 and 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony about Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. According to Old Testament law, for someone to, com to be com uh, accused of or, or to be condemned for committing blasphemy... Uh, the, the crime of blasphemy, to, be, to make light of or, or to ridicule God, all that you need is two or three witnesses that can agree publicly and swear under oath that, about the same evidence. And so this was supposed to be the easy part. You see, they've already decided that Jesus is guilty. This is just, this is, uh, you know, they've already decided on the verdict. So all that they need is the evidence, but they can't come up with it, you notice, because all of their false, wit all their witnesses trying to tell their own version of the story, are all contradicting each other. <laughs> They've all made up their own version of the truth, so none of, their virgin, none of their versions match up. And if it wasn't so 
tragic, it would be funny. I mean, the scene that's playing out in front of us is almost like the Three Stooges trying to conduct a criminal trial. And it's, and again, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical because they're getting trapped in their own trap. None of their witnesses that they've paid and prepared can agree with each other. But notice Mark tells us that there is one accusation that almost sticks, and he wants us to know about that one. The accusation that gets the closest to sticking is in verse 58, where they say, we heard him say, quote, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another that's not made with hands. Now, you might hear that and think, well, wait a minute. That actually sounds about right. Um, Didn't Jesus say something like that? Isn't that True testimony? How is that false witness? Well, here's the thing. In fact, Jesus did say something very close to this. Earlier in Mark, he said something close to this. But in John 2, we find him saying this. He's, in John 2, he's just finished driving out the, um, the, the, the money changers and merchants from the temple. And he says, quote, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Very close. So notice Jesus, he is commenting about the destruction of the temple. And he is making a comment and alluding to the fact that he's come to replace it with something better. We can't go into all of it now, but he's saying that that place where you're used to going and meeting with God, but you can't get into the inner part because of that big curtain, everything that I am and have come to do is to replace that so that you can meet with God here. Um, So he is commenting about the replacement and the destruction of the temple. But notice, and this is important, it seems like a technicality. Jesus never said, quote, I will destroy it. Okay, and that's important because there's a big difference there. If they can pin on him this charge that he said, I will destroy the temple, then they can make him out to be some kind of terrorist, some kind of religious social insurgent, you know, who's come to, to wreak havoc socially and religiously and to kill innocent people. To, for him, if they could convince uh, the Sanhedrin that he said, I'm going to blow that building up, that sounds different, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually, there's something more, there's something deeper going on here. If they can twist Jesus's words to say, I will destroy that temple, like he actually didn't say, then they can accuse him of blasphemy. And blasphemy carries with it the death penalty in Old Testament law. To commit blasphemy was to ridicule God, to intentionally mock and deride the living God. And they had all of these rules and barriers up so that they could not do that. And it even went so far as to the fact that they couldn't even say the name of God so that they wouldn't risk committing blasphemy. But in their minds, to speak against the temple like that, to say, I will destroy that place, that was to commit treason in the first, I mean, blasphemy in the first degree. Because to speak against the temple was to speak against everything associated with the temple. All of the religious way of life, all of, the, all of uh, what, the tem- what the temple stood for, its culture, and especially its God. Think of it like this. Back in that day, um, not just in Israelite um, culture, but in just religious culture in general. The, the temple stood for so much, kind of like this. Um, 
You might have watched some good SEC football yesterday, and I don't know what your affiliations are, but if you're deeply committed to and attached to a particular SEC football team, um, it's really, you know that it's really hard for, for SEC rivals to agree with each other about things, right? Like Ole Miss and Mississippi State folks don't really agree on too much. Um, Auburn and Alabama, uh, you, get, you get really deeply committed fans, dyed-in-the-wool type fans, don't really like each other too much, don't really agree about much. But, but you can put every SEC rival in the same room and they'll all agree about this one thing, that they all hate LSU. <laughs> like, if you've, been, if you've played a game in Death Valley, down in Baton Rouge, and you've been there, everybody can agree. It doesn't matter who your team is. You can hold hands with your rival and say, I hate LSU. Death Valley is the worst, Right? Because if you've been to Death Valley before, like, you know that you're lucky to have just made it out alive or with just a little bit of beer thrown on you, <laughs> right? Like, that's Death Valley. And so you'll probably hear, you know, really deeply committed SEC fans say, like, man, I hate that place. I do not want to go back to Death Valley again. But you know what they're saying? <laughs> this is really true. They're saying, I hate LSU football, <laughs> right? Like, everything associated with Death Valley, I hate that place and everything that it stands for, all of the culture and the vibe and everything. Now, granted, they could be wrong about this. This is just kind of the pathology of SEC, um, the way that we think about things. But they're, they're associating everything about LSU football with its stadium, and that's the way that a, an Israelite, and especially someone here in the Sanhedrin, would have thought about the temple. To speak against the temple was to speak against everything associated with it, especially with the God who lives there, his character and his presence. But listen, poor things, they just can't get their story straight. Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. That's why Jesus just stands there and doesn't even give them the dignity of a response. Mark tells us that he remained silent and he made no answer. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He stood there knowing the truth and let the false accusations wash all over him. Have you ever been in that kind of situation before? Mischaracterized, misrepresented, and you want to fix the story, and you know how, you know how every cell in your body just rises up wanting to fix the narrative. And here's Jesus standing there, letting this false accusation wash all over him. Why? Because he knows why he's there. Because he knows that his hour has come. He knows that this is the moment that he willingly, joyfully agreed to with his Father in eternity past to come and to stand in the courtroom of judgment as the innocent one in the place of the guilty ones. This is the moment that, that he's been waiting for. This is his hour, why he's come, to accept a verdict that he doesn't deserve, to be convicted of crimes that he didn't commit, to be misrepresented, to be mischaracterized and, under, and misunderstood, to be numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah says. The only way for Jesus to be numbered with the transgressors, the only person who's truly innocent in the history of the world, is to be falsely accused and stand there and take it. He stood there silent and he just took it because his mission was to come and to be judged 
in your place and in my place. You see, he knew that in order to stand for us and to defend us against the accusations about us that are actually true, that he would have to stand there alone and offer no defense for the accusations against him that weren't true. This is the moment in the trial, you see, where, where Jesus publicly, for the first time, reveals who he is. The trial brings out who he really is. And watch how it happens. The high priest, he knows that the trial is going off the rails, and he's got just one more card to play. Okay? Um, and it's in verse 61. He just straight up asks him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? You see, the trial's off the rails, and he knows if he can just get Jesus to incriminate himself and say something like this, then they've got him, okay? And so notice, when he asks the question, he's not curious. He's not looking for information. The high priest has already settled on the verdict. He already thinks that Jesus is a dangerous threat. So he just asks him, go ahead and publicly incriminate yourself. Who do you think you are? Are you the Messiah? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus had a thousand different options in front of him in terms of how he could respond here to reveal that he is the Messiah. A thousand different Old Testament references and metaphors and pictures, but look at what he chooses uh, to respond with. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. That's how he chooses to publicly reveal himself for who he really is in front of the only crowd that should have recognized him. Those first two words, I am. Notice that Jesus, he could have just said, you're right, but instead he says, I am. Referring and, and, and alluding to the personal covenant name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am who I am. But then he goes on and he draws together these two Old Testament references from Daniel chapter 7 and then Psalm 110. Go look those up later today. But here's what's important to see about those two references. He stitches them together, but both of them are references to this coming day in the future when someone will come, this son of man figure, this, this person who is both distinct from Yahweh and intimately associated with Yahweh who comes as the judge of the world to pronounce the final verdict on the world. That's what those two references are about, the coming judge of the world who, who comes. Okay, And notice this Messiah figure, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, he's seated at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of power with all authority to judge the world. So he's, he's distinct, though, from God. He's sitting at the right hand of God. But then notice this. He's deeply, intimately identified with God. He comes with the clouds of heaven. In the Old Testament, there's only one person that rides on the clouds, and that's God. And these clouds of heaven that he's referencing, they're not just like cumulonimbus clouds, you know, or like rain clouds. They're the clouds of heaven, meaning like the clouds that God surrounds himself with when he appears in glory. The same clouds that he wrapped himself around when he came to dwell in the temple back in the Old Testament. This is the Shekinah glory clouds of God. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's who I am. He's saying, I am the judge of the world who has come. 
I'm the sovereign judge who comes with divine authority to pronounce the final verdict on a guilty world. Now, don't miss the incredible irony here, though, because the Sanhedrin did not miss it at all. He's staring them in the face. He's staring his judges in the face in their courtroom, and he's saying, actually, I'm the judge here, and you're in my courtroom. (laughs) Don't let the handcuffs fool you. I'm the one in charge here, Jesus is saying. He's revealing himself to be the judge of the world who has come to be judged. He's revealing himself to be the judge who has arrived, not with a gavel, but in handcuffs, to stand trial himself. He's revealing himself to be the only innocent one who's come to be found guilty in his people's place. He's saying, that's who I am. This is the moment, and this is my hour. I am the judge, and I'm, and I'm coming to be judged. The trial, this, this fake trial, this, this kangaroo court, it really does reveal for the first time publicly who Jesus really is and why he's come publicly, that he's the judge who's come to stay in trial and to be judged in your place and in my place. John, another apostle, writes this in 1 John chapter 2. He writes, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's using courtroom language there. That language of of having an advocate before the Father is the language of having a trial lawyer, having someone that stands there and advocates for you and pleads your case. Jesus says, If you have sinned, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Brothers and sisters and friends, can you imagine having a better advocate, a better trial lawyer standing there next to you than the judge himself, the judge who has come to be judged? Can you imagine your case being in better hands? Can you imagine being safer? Jesus is saying, this is who I am. The trial reveals who he really is. He's come to accept the guilty verdict in the place of the ones that are guilty. And y'all, we so desperately need that first point because of the second point. We so desperately need to see who Jesus really is because Peter's trial is going to show us who we really are and what we're really like. Now, you may not like that second point, the way I phrase it. You might be thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Peter's trial is going to reveal who Peter is, okay? It doesn't have much to do with me. And listen, that's, that's true to a degree. Peter does get to know himself in a way that he didn't before. But the main point and why we have Peter's ugly, embarrassing failure written all over the pages of Scripture here is that it's actually not just about Peter. The point here, and we can't walk away from this thinking, Okay, don't be like Peter. Like the point here is strategies to avoid being in a a situation like Peter. Don't do that. Look, the point here is not don't be like Peter. The point here is that we are exactly like Peter. That's the point. The point is we're exactly like Peter. You see, Peter walked into the courtyard that night believing a certain kind of narrative about himself. He had swallowed hook, line, and sinker this story that he was a certain kind of person 
who wasn't capable of screwing up in all of the big major ways that other normal people are capable of. Okay, he had swallowed that narrative hook, line, and sinker about himself. He had bought into the story that he was different, that he was stronger, that he was capable, that he was exceptional in some kind of way, that he was resilient, that he was made of the right stuff. Remember, it was just a few hours ago, just a few hours ago that Jesus had, had sat there in that room with them in the upper room, and he looked at his disciples and he said, all of you will fall away. As it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter looks back at him and he says, even though they all fall away, I will never fall away. He totally threw the other disciples under the bus. You hear what he said. He said, Jesus, first of all, I don't think you're interpreting Scripture correctly. But secondly, um, I think you got them right, but not me. They might but not me. I've spent three years with these jokers. I know them. Yeah, they probably will, but not me. You have totally misdiagnosed me. I'm not like them. I'm different. And it's at this point that Jesus looks back at Peter, and he does the most loving thing that he could do. Even though he knows it won't work, he tries to correct Peter's narrative about himself. And he tells him who he is and what he's really like. But it just rolls off of Peter's pride like water off of a duck's back. He looks at Peter in the eyes and he says, Peter, this very night, in just a few hours before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. This very night, you're going to do that one thing that you don't think you're capable of doing. And Mark writes that at this point, Peter gets offended. He responds emphatically, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. In other words, Jesus, dead gummit, you don't know me. You don't know me like I know me. You've made a big mistake about me. You might know everything else, but you've totally missed me, Jesus. I'm too committed. I'm too strong to fail you like this. I'm just not the kind of person that would crumble like that. It's just not me. It's just not in here. I can't fail like that, Jesus. It's just not me. I thought you were a good judge of character, but apparently not. You just don't know me like I do. And in just a few hours, Peter has traveled what he thought was the impossible distance between I will never do that and I can't believe I just did that. And that distance was a lot shorter than he thought that it was going to be. And he made it in record speed. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to travel that distance between I would never do that and I can't believe I just did that? Do you know what it's like to go from I won't do that again to why did I just do that again? Do you know what that's like? You see, we're all like Peter. Peter, this trial of Peter is revealing us what we're really like more than we want to admit it. You see, for Peter, this was just an ordinary moment. There were no cameras, no microphones. He didn't know this was being recorded. It was just a mundane, ordinary moment. And so he just did what came so easily. He just put himself first. He just thought about himself. 
just like we do all the time. Peter's trial reveals us as we really are, (laughs) what we're really like. We so easily buy into this false narrative of who we are. We buy into this false version of who we want to be and who we think we are. We believe that we're different. (laughs) We believe that we're stronger, cut from a different cloth, decent, not capable of doing that one big thing. We're different from those folks, slightly higher up the scale, not capable of that big moral failure that we read about in the news this week. Them, probably not me. We don't want to admit that we're the kind of people who, if we were left to ourselves for not very long, that we could, in just a few hours, do that one thing that we never thought we were capable of. I don't want to believe that about me. And you don't want to believe that about you. It's so much safer to buy into a different narrative and to see myself as a better version of who I really am. But Peter's trial reveals me like I really am, what I'm capable of and what you're capable of. You see, Peter's trial reveals to us that version of ourselves that we desperately want to think is real, that version of us that's capable and independent and strong and all put together and can stand on our own, this trial reveals that that version doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And see, here's the, the unbelievable good news, brothers and sisters, that people like Peter and people like us should never get tired of. That's not the version that Jesus came for. The version of us that we think is all put together and capable and strong, Jesus didn't come for that version of us. Jesus came for us as we really are. The us that that he can see out in the broad daylight that we don't want to admit is true. That's the version of us that Jesus came for. The real me and the real you. The one that we get to know after we failed and we realize just how weak and broken we really are. That's the version of us that Jesus came for. It's the only one that he knows That's the one that he's pursuing. That's the version of us that he loves, brothers and sisters. And it's the version of us that he wants to change. But you see, he's got to convince us that that version of us is the real us first. You see, at the beginning of Peter's trial, grace just didn't mean much to Peter. It just didn't. At the beginning of that trial, when he walked into that courtyard, capable and strong, realizing he was the only disciple that actually followed Jesus. He's the only one that's there, after all. That does speak in his favor. But he didn't understand that his need for God's grace until after the trial, when we see him broken and in a puddle, face-to-face with his own failure, deeply shamed and embarrassed, and convinced that there's no reason why God shouldn't abandon him right now, just like he's just abandoned Jesus. It's in that moment, in that space, in the shame, in the failure, in the reality of his brokenness, that's where Jesus comes to meet him. That's where Jesus pierces through to meet him. Y'all, there's this incredible passage that just stops me in my tracks in in Luke 
in Luke 22, when he records this, this passage, it says that right at this moment, right as the rooster is crowing and Peter is falling down on his knees, it says, quote, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the Lord turned and locked eyes with Peter. He found him right there. Now, because I, because I have this tendency to think that God is a lot like me, this is how I've always understood that passage. I've always understood Jesus to be locking eyes with Peter in that moment. And this expression on his face of like, Peter, dead gummit, you idiot. You did it again. You failure, exasperated, frustrated, shamed. But brothers and sisters, what if there was a different expression on Jesus' face? What if the expression on Jesus' face, instead of communicating shame and condemnation, instead communicated to Peter, Peter, I'm not surprised. Peter, this is the you that I've known the whole time. And I've loved you the whole time. You didn't know that you were like this, but I've known the whole time. And that's why I'm doing this. And I'll see you in a few days. Y'all, it was that expression on Jesus' face that prevented there being two dead disciples by Easter morning. This was the look that saved Peter's life. Jesus coming to find Peter right there in the shame, right there in the brokenness, to say, now that you know yourself as you really are, now you can see me as I really am, a God of more grace than you have possibly imagined, a God who comes to find you as you really are, and a God who comes to love you right here where you really are in all of your brokenness and shame. And I've come to change who you really are. It was on resurrection morning that the women went to the grave and they found an empty tomb. Instead, they found an angel that said to them, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going in front of them. Can you imagine what it did to Peter's heart to hear that his Savior couldn't wait to see him? Y'all, you have a Savior like that. You have a Savior that knows you as you really are. He's committed, he's committed to you seeing who you really are, as painful as that process can be. But he knows that the only thing that will let you survive that process is trusting in who he really is. In, in trusting in who he really is, the judge who has come to stand in the place of his guilty people. Brothers and sisters, may that gospel, may that good news thrill our hearts. May it warm our hearts that are cold. <laughs> may, it, may it let us fall down at the feet of Jesus for the first time or for the 10,000th time, amazed at the grace that finds us where we are and who we really are, and the beauty of who he really is. May that grip our hearts for the first time or the 10,000th time this morning. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, thank you for this, for this good news. We need it. Maybe we need it more now than we thought that we did. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we go from this place, <laughs> that we would go seeing the expression on our Savior's face, the expression on the judge of the world's face who came to be judged in his people's place so that he could lock eyes with us right now and say there is no condemnation. Oh, Lord, may that thrill our hearts. May it begin to change us and to transform us into new kinds of people as we follow you and see you seeing us. Make that true, we pray, Lord Jesus, for your glory, and we pray that in your name. Amen.